we're in 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13 today. Folks, I am so excited about what we're going to talk about today. We are in a series called Fearless, and we're talking about what it means to be without fear. And Paul is telling the church here that they have no need to be fear. One thing people are fearful about often is the unknown, is the future. Does anybody have a crystal ball? I don't have one either. Wouldn't know what to do with it if I did. But Paul wants us to know we don't need to worry about the future. We don't need to be afraid. So let's stand together and let's read this passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him all those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Maybe one of, I mean, one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible right here, what we're looking at today. Let's pray and then we'll jump into this. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are such a good and gracious God and that you have revealed truth to us through your word. As we study this passage, may we have insight, may we have understanding by your spirit, but most of all, may we be encouraged and may we find hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, please be seated. We are dealing today, folks, with a passage that is prophetic. All right, this is an eschatological passage, meaning it deals with the end times. It deals with the last things, future prophecy yet fulfilled. All right, what does the future hold? We're about to learn some of that today. Now, when you study prophecy, it can be rather intimidating. It can be rather daunting. It can be rather confusing. And for some of us, it can be a little scary. But we want you to know something right off the bat in your notes today. Bible prophecy is not written to scare us. It's written to prepare us. All right? So don't be scared. Be prepared. That's the message as we begin. Now, how does Paul start this passage? In verse 13, he begins by saying, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Some versions say, we don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. All right? Warren Wiersbe says, that's the largest denomination in the world, the ignorant brethren. All right? What are we not to be uninformed about? He said about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those do who have no hope. All right? Uh, hope is a word that's very important with what we're talking about because he's going to describe a future event that is an event of hope. In fact, it's the same event that he talks about in Titus 2.13. And he says, this is our blessed hope, this event. What event is he talking about? He says in Titus, this event, this blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about today. We're talking about his coming, appearing, the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. And in the church today, we have a word for this. We call this event the rapture. 
the rapture, all right? Now, the rapture is a doctrine that has fallen on hard times in the church uh, over recent years. Not so many in the church talk about the rapture. In fact, some have outright rejected the rapture. They say, well, the word rapture, it's, it, this doctrine's man-made. You see, the word rapture doesn't appear in your Bible. You won't find it anywhere in the Bible, so you don't need to worry about it. And to that, I would simply say there are a lot of words that appear in your Bible, or that don't appear, rather, in your Bible. A lot of words don't appear. You know what doesn't appear in your Bible? The word Trinity. And yet the concept is clearly there. You got God and three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, three in one. That's the Trinity. You know what else doesn't appear in your Bible? The word missions. Do we engage in missions? We absolutely do. We follow the Great Commission. Be my witnesses. Make disciples. That's what we're all about. You know what word doesn't appear in your Bible? Bible. All right? My point, we invent words used to identify concepts, key concepts, when we see them in Scripture. And that is the case as we talk about this amazing event called the rapture today. Now, I'm going to ask some important questions as we study this. First of all, what is it? What is the rapture? Well, I've got a simple definition as we begin here. The rapture of the church is that future event when Jesus Christ will descend from heaven to do two things. And the first in your notes is this. He is coming back to resurrect the bodies of departed believers. He is going to resurrect them. He's going to raise the dead. The church of Thessalonica had a fear. They were fearful about something. Now, Paul had started this church. He had loved on these people. He had invested in them. And he had taught them extensively about the return of Christ. So they know he's coming back. He's going to set up his kingdom. But in Paul's absence, as he is away from them, Something has happened that is causing them to be fearful. They are experiencing that some in their midst, in their body, have begun to die. They've got some older Christians in their fellowship that are dying. And they know, Paul said that Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, he's going to establish his kingdom. Oh, no, Grandpa Joe's already passed away, and Aunt Betty, she died last week, and Uncle Joe is about to die. Are they going to miss out on the return of Christ? And so Paul is alleviating their fear by reminding them of a core truth of the Christian faith, something that we believe as, as Christians. Look at verse 14. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. couple things here. First of all, Paul is saying, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Can you be a Christian and not believe that Jesus died and rose again? You cannot. This is essential to the Christian faith. He literally died for your sin on the cross, and he literally physically rose from the dead. So Paul is saying, since we believe that Jesus rose, we must necessarily and logically believe that we who are in Christ will also rise from the dead. All right? He gets that settled right out the gate. Then, notice, he uses a phrase... That's very interesting. Notice that he does not refer to those Christians who are physically deceased as having died. He doesn't say that they've died. What does he say? He says that they have what? Fallen asleep. That's right. He says they're not dead. They're sleeping. All right? And uh, uh, I share this at every funeral, every memorial that I speak at. I say, I say this is what Paul says about those who have passed away. He says that they're sleeping. Because there's so much hope in this. Paul says they're not dead, they're asleep. Doesn't it sound like he's talking to little children? Well, they're not dead, 
They're just sleeping. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think he wants our understanding of this to be very, very simple. And he's basically saying that the body in whatever state it's in is not the person. It's the soul that is the person. C.S. Lewis said, I don't have a soul. I am a soul. I have a body. Amen? The soul is the person. The body is merely the vehicle that the soul inhabits while on this earth. And when physical death takes place, it's not the soul that dies. The soul continues to live forever. It's the body, when perishing, that, that in a way goes to sleep, Paul says. Now, when someone goes to sleep, what eventually happens? They, they wake up. Well, that's what we hope happens, amen? Right? And he's saying when the body dies, the body is sleeping, and one day... There's going to be an awakening, and it's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns to this earth, all right? There's an awakening coming, and this belief makes all the difference. If you understand this, it makes all the difference. You can always tell when you go to a funeral or a memorial who are the strong Christians that understand the Scripture and who are not, and it's in how they grieve. It's in how they mourn. Paul says, I don't want you to mourn as those who have no hope. Christians mourn differently. Do we mourn? Yes, we mourn. We grieve those when they die. Why? Because we love them and we're going to miss them. They're not presently with us, but we know that one day, if they knew Jesus and we know Jesus, we're going to see them again. And we can be fearless about that fact, all right? A few years ago, my grandma died. I loved my grandma. I was very close to her. And I went to her memorial. Now, in my family, we have strong Christians. We have some who are not. And it was evident in how they grieved at that memorial. Now, this was an open casket funeral, all right? I'm not big on those. Now, if you have those in your family, I'm not judging. I understand there's a need for closure sometimes, visually. You need to see that loved one in the casket there. For me, really doesn't do anything. Because as I looked at my grandma's body in that casket... Uh, I, I didn't feel anything about her because, number one, it didn't look like her. Seldom does, right? Secondly, it wasn't her. That's not her. When I looked at the body in the casket, I thought, that's not my grandma. That's just the candy shell. The peanut's in heaven. Amen? All right? We're going to see the peanut again, right? All right, so here's what's going to happen. In verse 15, Paul says... For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. He's saying, hey, don't worry about your, your loved ones who have passed away. You, you worry that you're going to get to Jesus and they're going to miss out. <laughs> Listen, they're already with him. They beat you to him. All right? They're already with Jesus. And he says in verse 16 that for the Lord himself, one day will descend from heaven, the Lord himself. He's going to come down. This is such an important visit. He is not sending a representative. He's coming in person. The Lord himself, he will descend with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, all right? The dead in Christ, the Christians who have passed, all right? So here's what's happening. Jesus, at this moment, he's going to descend from where? Where is he now? He's in heaven. He's coming from heaven. All right? And it says there's a cry of command. A cry of command. And there's a trumpet involved. Now, when I hear that lingo, that has a, a, an almost military-style summoning uh, connotation to it, doesn't it? I picture a bugler on a military base, right? And they're blowing reveille at the crack of dawn. 
What happens when that, when that uh, reveille is, is tooted on that horn? Do those soldiers hit the snooze button? No, they do not. They are up, right? They are at attention. They get about the business of their commanding officer. It's not up for debate, right? Because there's an authority involved there. There's an authority that Jesus has at this cry of command. He raises the dead. He has always had the authority to raise the dead. Did Jesus ever raise the dead when he was on the earth? Yes, he did. You remember Lazarus? Jesus had this friend, Lazarus. He came to Bethany. Lazarus had been sick. And and by the time he got there, he found out Lazarus was dead. He'd been dead for four days. He was probably already starting to decompose in the tomb. Jesus stood at the door of that tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And here he comes. Here comes Lazarus wobbling out of that tomb, all wrapped up head to toe because he was told to by one who had authority. And scholars have noted that Jesus used Lazarus's name specifically. And some have wondered aloud if Jesus didn't say Lazarus's name and he just said, come out, would all the dead from around the world have just popped out of their tombs? Kind of interesting to think about. But that is the kind of authority that Jesus has that he will exercise when he comes. Now, notice in verse 14, it said that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, right? And then in verse 16, it says at the cry of command, at that trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise. Now what's happening? Are they coming with him or are they rising to meet him? Well, it's both, isn't it? Because those coming with him, that's their soul. Those are the individuals in spiritual form. The bodies at his cry are going to rise. That's the shell that that the soul had once inhabited. And what rises is not the old body. It's a new spiritual, uh, not spiritual, physical resurrection body. It's going to be supernatural. And it's not going to be the old shell that they inhabited. It's going to be a brand new body that is transformed, that is resplendent, that is like the body of Christ. And at that very moment, the soul is going to be united with that brand new spiritual resurrection body. Isn't that an amazing thought? Just incredible. All right, this is what's going to happen. They're going to get a brand new body. Are you guys excited to have a brand new body one day? Oh, man, I'm excited about that. One day I'm going to be eye to eye with Pastor Jeremy. And we may discover that it's God's ideal that we all be five foot five. I just, you know, it could happen. I'm just saying. But we're going to get a brand new body. Now, some of you may be thinking, you know, I went to a funeral one time and the pastor said, well, so-and-so is passed away, but, uh, you know, they're not in pain anymore. They've got a brand new body. And you may be asking, Pastor Scott, when, when a Christian dies, do they get their brand new body upon death? And I would have to say, I don't believe so. Not yet. Not yet. All right, when do they get it? They get it at the rapture. All right, now it is absolutely true. They are not in pain right now. They are not dealing with anything that they had in this life. Any cancer, any heart condition, any physical malady, any, any mental anguish, any struggle with temptation, that's all gone when you pass away in Christ. You are with him, you are at perfect peace, and you are in spiritual form. And one day you'll return to this earth with Jesus, and you will receive your brand new body at that moment. And that is what scripture teaches. So then he's going to resurrect the bodies. Secondly, in your notes, he's going to transform and translate the bodies of living believers, all right? So the dead in Christ rise first. Why do they rise first? 
Some have said they got six feet more to go. I don't know if that's the reason. But then in verse 17, it says, then we who are alive or left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. We who are alive, who are left, that's those of us who have lived long enough to see the return of Christ, all right? Uh, uh, what happens? It says that we're going to be caught up. Now, you remember I said some would say that the word rapture is not in Scripture anywhere. I beg to differ. This phrase, caught up, all right, uh, comes from the Greek word harpazo. Harpazo, it means to pluck, to pluck, all right, to, to snatch. Uh, in Greek mythology, you've got these uh, beings with wings and sharp talons, and they come down, they pluck the souls of men, they snatch them away and carry them off, and they're called harpies. You ever heard that word, harpies? Some of you have called in-laws that. No, these are harpies. Come from the word harpazo, all right? We have an instrument that we play it and we pluck the strings. What do we call it? That's a harp. It comes from harpazo, to pluck. There's a Latin word translated from harpazo, and it's the Latin word rapio. Rapio, you know what it means? It means to take abruptly. Okay, guess what word we get from rapio? Rapture, that's right. So in a roundabout way, this is where rapture comes from, is from the word harpazo indirectly. So this is what's happening. And Jesus had prophesied to his disciples at one point. He said, and if I go away to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you will be also. All right, and, and we're gonna be taken and we're going to be ta translated to heaven. And as we are caught up, we who are alive then, uh, and by the way, there's no benefit to living long enough to see the rapture. Some people are like, I just don't want to miss out on the rapture. You're not going to miss out. If you die in Christ, you'll be there. You're just coming with him. All right? If you live long enough, you're going to see it from the other angle. But we're all going to have a front row seat at the rapture if we're in Christ. All right? And as we're caught up, we're going to be transformed. Those of us who are alive at that time. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed. All right? Many a church nursery has that written on the wall. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. One day, you are going to be changed. It won't involve a diaper. Amen? That's the old life. Now the new body doesn't need that. Uh, you're going to be transformed from head to toe, and it's going to be miraculous because you don't have a corpse that needs to be resurrected. You have a living body, and it's going to necessarily be changed. All right? I'm going to talk about that more in a, in a little bit here, but it's going to happen very quickly. Paul says it happens in the twinkling of an eye. That's even faster than the blink of an eye. It's the twinkling of an eye. And, and so that's the rapture. That's the what of the rapture. The dead in Christ are raised incorruptible, the living believers are taken and changed, all right? And I want you to just think about the aftermath of such an event. What will the world experience when this incredible thing has happened? When, when millions, perhaps a billion or more, hopefully, I pray, are taken from the earth in that day, what chaos will ensue? Can you imagine? Will there be cars without drivers? I would think so. Will there be planes without pilots? I would imagine that that's the case. Will there be delivery rooms in which a doctor is, is delivering a baby and suddenly, because they're before that age of accountability, there is no child to pull from the mother's womb? I, this is all conjecture, admittedly, but you can just imagine, logic would bring you to the conclusion that the world will descend into chaos when masses simply vanish from the earth. 
the what of the rapture. Now, when? When is the rapture? February 13th. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't even do it. I scared some of you. You're like, February 13th? Oh, not before Valentine's Day. Some of you are like, please, God, come before Valentine's Day, right? <laughs> In your notes, let's make this very clear. The exact time is unknown. It's unknown, except to who? God the Father. Look at the words of Jesus Christ. What does he say? He says, but concerning that day, this is Matthew 24, 36. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, <gasps> but the Father only. You hear that? Jesus is saying, guys, I don't even know when I'm coming back. Let me just tell you something. If Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back, that quack on the radio doesn't know. You got me? If you hear anybody say, the Lord's coming back on such and such a day, you turn it off, you get as far away from that idiot as you can. No one knows. No one knows. It's not a, this will be the biggest surprise in the history of planet Earth. He's going to catch the world completely off guard. Now, I have never successfully been able to surprise my wife. All right? She had a birthday last week. January 15th was her birthday. It, she celebrated a milestone birthday, and I knew this was coming up. It's a big, it's a big deal, this particular one. I've got to go all out. I've got to do something big. She did it for me on my last milestone birthday, and so I got to do it. And I thought, I got it. I knew after Christmas we were going to Utah. We were going to meet up with my family, my brother and his family, for like a week. I thought, I got it. On the way home, I'll swing by Anaheim, and we'll do Disneyland couple days at Disney. She'll love it in honor of her birthday. And I'll have t-shirts made. Birthday t-shirts. People do that. And in hers will say in a Disney font, birthday girl. And then our kids can be birthday squad. And mine, of course, will say most expensive day ever. <laughs> right? And I was pretty proud of my plan. <laughs> One week before we leave, my wife comes to me. She goes, honey, I got a great idea. What if on the way back from Utah, we stop by Disneyland? The kids would love it. And you can have t-shirts made because I got a birthday coming up and people do that. They go and they all wear birthday shirts. Won't that be fun? I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. I'm thinking, man, now I got to think of something else because I'm not going to get credit for that. So then I'm like, I got it. I'll plan a surprise dinner party and I'll invite some of her friends or close friends and then, and then I'll do it after her birthday so it'll be a surprise. She won't expect it, right? Day before her birthday. She goes, honey, are you doing something with my friends for my birthday? Because none of them have asked me what I'm doing on my birthday. I'm like, I'm not comfortable with this line of questioning, you know? So then I think, I, okay, I got, I just, it was a mission. I got a surprise her. She needs a new computer. Her, she's had this laptop for like 10 years. It's time for a new MacBook. I go online. I involve my father-in-law, who's really tech savvy. We spec this thing out. I buy the thing, pay for it with my credit card. I have it shipped to my in-law's house so she doesn't see the box, okay? I'm like, got it. Surprise. Here we go. The next morning, she wakes me up with a gasp. She's got her phone. She goes, oh, honey, somebody stole our credit card. <laughs> I got a fraud notification. Somebody spent a lot of money at Apple Store. Did you know about this? I'm like, I give up. I give up, God. I just, I don't. Later, I'm, uh, she's in the bathroom getting ready for a day. I'm still wallowing in my defeat in bed. 
She calls in the room. She goes, honey, can you check the weather for me? I'm like, you know what? No. You're going to have to be surprised, all right? You don't get to know everything, lady. Man, let me tell you something. Jesus Christ is going to do what Scott has never been able to pull off. He's going to shock my wife. He's going to show up, and the world will be completely caught off guard. But here's what I want you to know in your notes. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we can believe, I, I would say in your notes, the rapture will be soon. The rapture will be soon. How do you know that, Scott? Because Jesus says so. His last words in Revelation twenty two twenty: surely I am coming soon. How soon? Soon. Whether it's a day, a century, a millennia, 10,000 years, it is soon as far as Jesus and we are concerned. In the scope of eternity, it's going to happen very, very quickly. You say, didn't the early church think it was going to happen in their lifetime? Yes, they did. And isn't that exactly the perspective we ought to have? Let me ask you, if you knew he was coming back tomorrow, if you knew he was coming back in a week, if you knew he was coming back in a year, five years... 10 years, would you live your life differently, Christian? Would you make different choices? Would you invest in eternal things? Would you not spend as much time on frivolity? Would you, would you tell people about Jesus if you knew he was coming back that quickly? If you felt like the clock was ticking? That's how we ought to live. What are you going to do differently with the understanding that his return is imminent? It's imminent. It can happen at any moment. He says to watch for his appearing. It'll come on a day that you do not expect. And you know what? If you believe that, if you believe that no one knows the hour and you believe that he's coming soon, I believe, I believe reasonably in your notes that the rapture will be before what's called the tribulation. It's an event called the tribulation. When you talk about the rapture, you necessarily must talk about the tribulation, at least in part. What is the tribulation? The tribulation is a future seven-year period of judgment on the earth. It's prophesied in the Old Testament. It, we call it the 70th week of Daniel. I don't have time to get into all the nuances of the tribulation, but you need to know it's a seven-year period whereby God will finish his discipline of the nation of Israel who has long rejected her true Messiah and he will bring her to the place where she receives Jesus as Messiah. And during this time, he will also judge the unbelieving on the earth. This seven-year period will be marked by tremendous calamity, catastrophe. There will be unspeakable horrors and judgments, an incredible loss of life. And it is a time like the earth has never known and you don't want to be there. And I believe that if you are born again, you won't be there. You say, why do you believe that, Scott? I have a lot of reasons why I believe. I could do a whole sermon on this. I don't have time to get into all of the reasons why I don't believe that the church will be there during the tribulation. But logically, let me just show you that the book of Revelation is the book that describes the tribulation in the most vivid detail in the Bible. And it's that book where in the first three chapters... Before you get to the tribulation chapters, the church figures very prominently. Jesus speaks to the church. The church is referenced 17 times in the first three chapters of Revelation. 
At the beginning of chapter 4, the author, John, is told to come up here and he is transported to heaven where he is, it is unfolded to him the events of the tribulation and the, those details. And he is to write it down. And then for the next 16 chapters, we read about the events of this horrible period called the tribulation. Guess how many references to the church are in those tribulation passages? Zero. Why? Because I don't believe we will be present for the tribulation. The next time you see the church on earth is in chapter 19. Jesus is going to come back and he is going to defeat the Antichrist. And he is presented as a beautiful bridegroom, resplendent, dressed in white on a white horse. And who is with him? His bride. Who is the bride of Christ? The church. And we are coming back with him. He's going to take us before and he's bringing us back after. All right? And when, when we look at that, that is cause for us to be fearless about the future. Amen? Now, why? <laughs> why are we going to be raptured? Well, the first reason, I believe, flows out of what we were just talking about. And in your notes, it's this. It's deliverance of believers from judgment on the earth. You see, that seven-year period is a time of judgment of the unbelievers, and it's an opportunity to bring Israel back into a place of belief. It is not about the church. That period is about Israel and judging the unbelieving world. You are not meant for that kind of wrath. In, in fact, it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, could that wrath be eternity in hell? Is that what that's talking about? I don't believe so. The context of this book is the return of Christ to the earth. And in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, it says that Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath of come, he is coming back. We are to wait for the Son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath that is coming upon the earth. That's good news, isn't it? I heard somebody say the other day, you know, you don't hear about the, the pre-tribulational rapture much anymore in churches. I and I said, why do you think that is? And they said, well, maybe it's because there's a lot of good Christians that have other views on when we'll be raptured. And that's true. There are good people who believe that we'll be raptured in the middle of the tribulation. Some believe that's called mid-tribulationism. Some believe it'll be at the end of the tribulation. That's called post-tribulationism. I would just say, if, if, if no man knows when it's gonna happen and you believe it'll happen in the middle of the tribulation, then when the tribulation starts, you can't say nobody knows when it'll be because you know, I just gotta make it three and a half years and I see Jesus. If he's coming at the end, you know at the beginning of the trib, you just know seven more years until Christ comes back. But no one knows the hour. No one knows the hour of the rapture. And, and, and I think sometimes we don't talk about that because we don't want to offend people who believe differently. Hey, listen, is it offensive to say, are you a Christian? Well, then good news. You don't have to endure unspeakable horror on the earth. I don't think that's an offensive message right there. I think that's a pretty darn encouraging message. And that's what Paul thinks too because he ends this chapter saying, therefore, encourage one another with these words. If you're going to go through holy hell on the earth, that's not very encouraging. That's not very comforting. It's a deliverance. Secondly, in your notes, it's an allowance for the judgment of unbelievers on the earth. To take the church from planet earth allows God then to judge the earth 
as he intends. There is a human being that's going to figure very prominently into the tribulation period. He's called the Antichrist. And he will be the most evil person who ever lived. He'll make Hitler look like a total amateur. And he will be, uh, he is known as the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. And when this person rises, he will be the leader of the entire world and he will put Israel through hell and he's going to do vile, uh, vile things and he will be the leader of the entire world and his rise to that position will be to universal acclaim. Now, how does somebody like that rise to power? Look at 2 uh, Thessalonians 2, verse 3. People were trying to tell the church at Thessalonica that, that the kingdom was already happening on the earth. Paul says, let no one deceive you in any way. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, that's Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And he continues, verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work and only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Who is it that restrains evil? Who is it that restrains the Antichrist? Did you know that the restraint of evil is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit? How does the Holy Spirit restrain evil? He does it through the church. This Holy Spirit indwells every believer on earth. And it is through the church that evil is opposed. Historically, it's the church who has stood up against evil, against slavery. It's the church that stands against the sex trade. It's the church who speaks up for the rights of the unborn. And as we observe this horrific law just enacted in New York... And that tower all lit up in pink to celebrate the fact that we can now abort babies up until the due date. Who is the, who is the voice that speaks out against that atrocity, that, that speaks up for the rights of those who have no voice? It's primarily the church. And one day, the church will be taken from the earth. There will be no voice to oppose evil. And evil will run amok on the earth and it's in that scenario that this evil person, this antichrist will rise and that will set in motion a series of events that will allow for Israel to be brought to her knees to receive Christ in truth and will allow for God to judge the unbelieving on the earth. Third, I believe that the rapture will enable the righteous to inherit the kingdom. This, this, this event is going to allow us to inherit glory. I read this in part earlier. It says, in a moment, we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. All right? We will be changed. Uh, we will, those of us who are alive at that moment, we're going to be transformed. Why do we need to be transformed? Why do we need a new body? Because your present body cannot inherit glory. Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. The body you now inhabit in the glory and the presence of an almighty God would be incinerated as you presently exist. You need a supernatural body. You need an incredible new body. What will it be like? In 1 John 3, 2, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when we see him, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he 
is. You will be able to look upon him because you have supernatural eyes and you have a body like the body of Christ. You will be like him. The things that he could do in his resurrection body, you will be able to do. And it will be tremendous. So you looking forward to that day? Encourage one another with these words. Here's the bottom line. If you know Jesus, if he lives in your heart, if you have received his gift of grace, you can be fearless about the end of the age. And here's why. You may jot these down. First of all, you can be fearless because Jesus keeps his word that he's coming back. He's coming back, guys. Nothing uncertain in this life is gonna change that. I don't care who's in the White House, who's in Moscow, who's in Pyongyang. It does not matter. Jesus said, I'm coming soon, and he will. And you can be, secondly, fearless because those loved ones in Christ who are, who are passed on, you miss them now. Fear not, you will see them again. And when you see them, never to part. You will be together forever with the Lord. And then third, Christian, you can be fearless because his wrath is not meant for you. The coming judgment upon the earth is not a judgment that is intended for you. As a child of the king, he has paid the price for your judgment. And you can be fearless finally because that sinful body, that corrupt body that you now inhabit one day, it's gonna be gone. It's gonna be replaced by a brand new supernatural body fit for eternity, and that is worthy of celebration. But if you don't know Jesus, if you have never put your faith in him as savior, you have every reason to be fearful about the end of the age because his return could come at any moment. It could come before the end of this message. It could come before the end of this sentence. You are not promised your next breath. And if he does come and you have not given your life to him, then I'm here to tell you that you are presently under his wrath. You are subject to his coming judgment physically and eternally. But you can do something about that right now. You can do something about that right now. If you were presented with something right now to make you fearless about the future, would you choose to accept it? I got one last question for you today. He's coming back. Are you ready? Would you bow your heads? Every eye is closed. You may be here today and you may be saying, Pastor Scott, I am not ready, but I wanna be ready. Pastor Scott, I don't want to be the object of his wrath. I want to be the object of his mercy. You can be because he died on a cross for you because he loves you and he presents that grace made possible by his sacrifice to you as a free gift and if you receive it today, you can spend eternity in heaven with him and you don't need to worry about the future or about judgment and if you're ready to receive that, you can pray in your heart right now. Pray with me right now. Dear Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner. And as such, I am subject to your wrath. But I know and believe that you died for me and that you rose again. And I am putting my faith in that right now. Will you come into my life? Will you be my Lord and my Savior? In Jesus' name, every head is still bowed. If you just prayed that prayer for the very first time, nobody's looking, I'm just gonna ask you to slip your hand up right now. 
Thank you. Thank you. Now, everybody's still got their head down. I want to talk to you who just made that decision. If you prayed that prayer for the first time and you meant it, I'm going to ask you to do something today because a decision of that magnitude is worth telling someone about. And I'm going to ask you, after we conclude here today, if you've prayed that prayer, you've made that decision to trust Christ, I want you to go to our Welcome Center and I want you to ask for a Cove card and I want you to fill that out and I want you to write on there, I prayed to receive Christ today. We want to pray for you and we want to come alongside you and get you started on this brand new adventure made possible by Jesus Christ that you have just embarked on today. I'm gonna ask our prayer team at this moment if they could come up to the front. Anybody who needs prayer, if you wanna talk to somebody, if you made a decision and you need to tell somebody, you could talk to them as well. They're gonna be up here. Everybody can look up now. Everybody's looking up. If the person in front of you is missing, they weren't raptured, they went to the bathroom, okay? <laughs> I hope. Let me ask you a question. Does this message, is this text today, has this encouraged you today? Amen. Oh, I hope so. I hope you're filled with encouragement and hope today. Amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. That's the intent. We love you. Go in peace, go in grace, and be fearless. God bless.